Hey, and welcome to the I Fell Into This podcast. We are your hosts, Carol Isikia and Tina Sabs. In this episode, we speak to Ricardo Savini, who is such a great guy and creative in his field. Uh, he's currently the director, editor, and head of creative at Salon Pictures, Woo-hoo. which is an exclusive he gave us in this chat, isn't it? Tina? <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, our, our first exclusive our first. ever. But um, beyond that, he's someone that's had um, a real battle with his health and uh, also really finding his purpose in the film industry. And he was kind enough to have that chat with us. Yeah. And, you know, I just found it so great that he was just so transparent with us about his Crohn's disease and how he's, and how that condition has affected his life. And there's definitely positives and negatives to it. And it was really refreshing just to have such an open conversation with him. So thank you so much to Ricardo for his honesty. Yeah. And you guys hopefully see that it's come full circle for him. So we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the I Fell Into This podcast, Ricardo Savini. Where would you like to start your story with us today? So we will start when I was 12 years old and unfortunately my father died um, because that's pretty much where I can't, I can't really remember my life before then, but that feels like a very pivotal moment for me. Yeah, it's a very uh, pivotal time. I have many mutual friends who have lost parents at a very young age. And obviously kind of, I always say to people that people can go one or two ways. You can go really dark or you can be mm. like, oh, what does this mean to me? So what did you feel after that happened? It was really interesting because uh, my parents are going through divorce at the time. So my mm. dad wasn't living with us. And we had me, my mom, my sister, my sister's younger than me. We'd been out shopping all day. And this was, God, 25 years ago. So there wasn't like, I don't think we had mobile phones or anything. And so we just were shopping all day and we came back and there was a voicemail from my nan who'd been contacted by my dad's girlfriend at the time. And we were like, what is going on? And then I just remember sitting on the stairs and my mum just like getting the information on the phone. And then she just turned around and told us and we were like, it's hard to like exactly remember, but I do remember just walking straight into my bedroom, shutting my door and just turning music on. And I was, you know, into like really heavy music at that time. And I don't, because I didn't, I very specifically didn't cry because the only reason I remember that is because I literally just didn't cry. It was August when it happened and I didn't cry till Christmas Day. And I remember just waking up crying on Christmas Day and it just all hit me in that moment when I realized it kind of like came to me. But a big part of like the kind of way I dealt with it was comic books, especially Spider-Man. I got really into Spider-Man comics and I really related to the story because he lost his parents and Mm -hmm. then he loses his uncle, which is a big part of him becoming Spider-Man. So I just dived into that and that took me on a path of all kinds of comics, Marvel, DC being the main ones and then started getting more into independent stuff when I was older. But that's where I pretty much decided I wanted to be in like the creative industry. And I really wanted to be an illustrator and do comics but I just wasn't good enough at drawing so that kind of went out the window quite quickly patience of sitting there and practicing over and over your your crap I've never been patient (laughs) I've never had any any patience or I'm quite lazy I think nice so 
I like to think of myself as like a really high functioning lazy person. Nice. Me too. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just spent years not really knowing. And the funny thing of at, at, at school, I went to like quite kind of a, how do I say this? And it wasn't like the best school in the world. It wasn't the best educational system. And it was weird because you think like being in art, like I chose art as my, one of my choices basically. And they, are just so rigid with what they want from you. They just want you to draw like a vase with some flowers in. And mm-hmm. if you try and do anything creative yeah. and I was very into like Japanese anime. So I was always drawing stuff like that. And they were like, no, that's not art. No. Um, which I think is a really kind of annoying thing because if they let me get on with it, then maybe I would have pushed myself more with that stuff. And I just stopped doing it basically. And then I actually ended up completely going in a different direction and trying to become a footballer. <laughs> nice um, <laughs> what's that on? i don't know i just enjoyed playing football and i didn't know what else to do and someone said hey do you want to do this course so i went to where in hartford mm-hmm. yeah. and did like a football coaching course and yeah just started playing football basically but i very quickly felt like an outsider with the lads <laughs> it didn't feel right so i just left and then i went and worked at I actually became a accounts admin at EDF Energy for a bit. Didn't nice. have a clue what I was doing. Then I worked at Subway <laughs> for ages. And then, but during both those jobs, I started writing in my breaks, just writing little stories. And I guess that's where I was like writing little comic books and thinking about like when I was younger and I'd read more Spider-Man stuff and I started writing little superhero stories. So it all kind of started connecting almost. And I realized that this is what I wanted to do. And then one day I was at Pizza Express for a friend's birthday party and someone just said to me, why don't you make films? And it was literally as simple as that. I was like, don't I have to be like Ridley Scott's son to make films? And he was like, no, no, (laughs) just just go and make films. So I'd I'd done some work experience at uh, Computer Exchange, you know, CEX, where it is now. And I went there and I bought a secondhand camera and just started shooting films, basically, on this mini DV camera. To just take a few steps back, when you were at school and you had the interest in art and you were doing your comic books, did the teachers and the curriculum at that time really stifle your energy and your passion for it? Yeah, was it was that, was that the reason why you took a step back and decided that you didn't want to pursue it, even though it was something that was quite prominent in your life? You know, you you use that as an escape tool. You use that as comfort after your loss. So, was the the environment that was created at school with the curriculum and the teachers really effective to making you not want to pursue at that time? Yeah, it, it was actually quite an interesting one, actually, because my drama teacher really wanted me to do drama, like mm-hmm. instead of choosing art. And they, like, I remember them literally chasing me down the corridor, being like, you need to come and do like drama. You're, you should do this. You want me to do some acting. Like, this is a place for you. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, no, I want to draw. I want to draw. And I think about that a lot, considering the industry I ended up in, because like, that guy obviously saw something in me. His name was Mr. White. And he obviously, like weirdly enough at that age, I don't even know what age that is, 14, I think, or something. He'd seen something in me that meant I should enter that world, whether it, whether it was acting or the film industry or theatre or whatever. So maybe if I'd made that choice with a teacher who pushed me in into that world mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. pushed me to, to express myself in those ways, but I don't know. You never know what teacher you're going to get. And it was, like I said, very rigid. And they just wanted you to stick to these rules about what art was. And 
I think it's quite a common thing. They just like, mm-hmm. this is how you do it. And I think it's probably different now because comics and anime and things like that are more in the mainstream and people can probably see that there are so many careers that you can go with that. And they're actually like, you know, people making a bunch of money doing that stuff, even with the rise of Marvel in the film industry. But this was really early 2000s. And I think it was just a very different world. And I didn't want to draw flowers in vases so um, (laughs) I would have thought because of what you were going through there would have been a lot more kind of support and an emphasis on like supporting you going through but like you say maybe it wasn't the best some teachers are good some teachers aren't I guess yeah it's it's just uh, I ended up because I even got told off because I did my final piece I did a giant fantasy thing where I drew dragons and unicorns and stuff because I I found this middle ground where I could still draw like things like that but like draw real animals not dragons obviously but horses and stuff like that they were like it's good like we really like it but it's not really what we're looking for see and I was like (laughs) okay (laughs) it's so heartbreaking when you think of that because again like you think we're so young then and we're just developing ourselves and developing our styles and what we like and to just be put into a box and be told no this isn't what I'm looking for no this isn't right and it's like who's dictating what is right (laughs) who's dictating what we're looking for and it's really really it can be shattering, especially at that age. I think yeah. for sure. And I think I'm really lucky because my mum was the one who helped me push into a more creative path. She was so supportive because I know a lot of parents probably wouldn't have supported me at that point because another pivotal moment was after working at Subway, working at EDF Energy and just being like, what the hell do I do? I actually, because I got ill working at Subway and I had to have an operation because uh, mm-hmm. I had an abscess. And because I'd been standing up all day, all the time, it made me really ill. And I just was one, when my friend said the film thing, I just went to my mum and I said, like, I want to try and make films. And she was like, okay. And then a matter of weeks later, she she got a newspaper out and she's like, hey, look at this ad. And it said, literally said, want to learn to make films. And my mum was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, sure. And it was this place called Future Trend run by a guy called Martin Pye at the time. I, I called on my friend Sam and I was like, do you want to go to this two-week course making films? He was like, yeah, man. <laughs> like, it was just like the way we were when we were kids. <laughs> just like, do you want to do this? He was like, yeah, sure. Um, and it was like in nearby in our town, Enfield. And it was just in this little office. And there was like 10 of us, I think. And it was just a guy teaching us the basics of making a film. Like it's where I learned to edit video. Um, Were you at college or something at this point? No, no, I wasn't doing anything. I was just a little bum. (laughs) How old were you at this point? 17. So I'd left school. Mm -hmm. I did GCSEs and then I didn't do A-levels. I did a GMVQ in leisure and tourism, (laughs) which I got a distinction in. I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to just go work in leisure and tourism. But then I just, uh, that's actually where I went to the football instead. But from doing that two-week course, I was like, okay, I want to go to college. And then I went to Enfield College and did Media and Moving Image, which was like this awesome, really awesome two-year course. It was like 80% practical. And they just taught you to make music videos, taught you to make a documentary. So each term was a different, like, a, it was like, okay, we're going to learn to make music videos. They even like, we're like going to learn to animate. So that was fun for me because I could like draw and create yeah. and stuff. I actually went there with my friend, Chris Michael, who Carol knows. And we just kind of did this two-year course. And then after that, it was just the logical thing was like, okay, now do you want to go to uni? And I was like, sure. And did film production in Farnham and met Carol. Yeah. If you were to compare those two years of, of doing that course and being at college compared to the year where you were trying to do football, then working at EDF, then working at Subway, like how different was your headspace? Did you feel like a different person? 
oh, for like a hundred percent. I was, <laughs> this is going to sound bad, but, uh, <laughs> me and Chris were on like job seekers allowance at the time. And nice. we, didn't, and we, we the, the hour, cause the college course was like three days, I think. And the hours were just under amount where you could still get money from the job seekers allowance. <laughs> so our lives were amazing for that age. Like we just go, <laughs> go college, go to the chicken shop every day, just like chicken and chips. And we go cinema every day, like on the way home. And uh, every North London kids dream. And then we just pop to the job center on a Friday, get our, whatever it was, 70 pound a week. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was our weekend sorted. So it was Tuesday like, movies. Yeah, it was the life we were sorted. <laughs> and I enjoyed my course because all we did was make films and talk about films and like play around basically. Like I could have done that forever to be honest. Did you find that when you got to uni, you were like one of the best people equipped? Because it sounds like quite of a practical course. And I remember when I did photography at mine and I was the only person who could use a darkroom when I mm. arrived. That's and they literally made us put our hands up. <laughs> He's used a dark room before. It was so hands-on that when I got to uni, I was like, oh, I didn't really focus on the theory side. Like, how was it for you arriving and having all this knowledge? Yeah, I definitely felt like we had a very good class. It was very 50-50 with people. Like, even the way it's turned out, it was very 50-50 with people who were like, you could tell 100% going to like keep going and film no matter mm. what. Some people you just knew just didn't really care. And a lot of people left very early on. I remember people just leaving quite like almost like two weeks into the course. Um, oh, wow, really? Like oh, yeah, people, it's people hard. People were just dropping out. Like, they were just like, bye. Also, and I don't know how you dealt with this, but we're, we're critiqued like every week. So like you yeah. create something right. and then you get critiqued on it. Like we have to sit in a class and we have to give like fine critique and it can't just be like, I don't like this film. It has to be like this film because of the color, because of the flow, because of the intro could have been better. Like you have to dissect it. it I, not that it ruins the way that I watch films now because I do photography and we have to do it in a very different, the same way, but in the, obviously you're looking at a static image. So it's like the theory behind that. Why did you take this picture? What did this picture emote? Like it gets really deep. So now when I watch, like I was, I always say to people, I watch Squid game figured it out 10 minutes i was like it's this dude i skipped to the end of the i watched the last episode and i was like yeah i got it right but i still watched the whole thing because the story is very important to me just to kind of like backtrack with you as well you went through a very kind of like life-changing experience how did that kind of weigh in on your decision making did you think about your dad when you were making decisions did you think about like how that affected you when you're making decisions? It's a really interesting question because I don't really know where my autistic side comes from because there's not really, I know a lot of people like I'll meet in my industry, they'll be like, oh, my parents were super into film or this or that, or they were an artist or they did creative stuff or they just were into, like literally just, even if they were just into films and like showing them films, my mum wasn't like that. And I, I honestly don't really have memories of my dad. Like my relationship with my dad has always been something mm -hmm. that's kind of weighed Fragmented. on me. I, yeah, I have like these random memories and a lot of them are from after he left. I think I remember, like I remember visiting him on the weekends more than, because he wasn't really there. He was always working. I have, my memories of my dad is hearing his car go over the gravel of the, you know, outside my house when I'm in bed and then he comes into the house 
came into the room, said goodnight to me and went to bed. And then when I woke up, he was already gone to work again. So mm-hmm. those were kind of my memories of my dad, really, and my fa- and parents arguing and stuff. So I don't know. There has been a lot. He has had a lot of influence on me creatively, but also just in my life because I've always had this like struggle of like trying not to be him. Um, you know, someone that cheated on my mum and mm-hmm. wasn't a very, and you know, t- really kind of wasn't a very nice person. <laughs> so that's weighed on me a lot. And I guess that sometimes has come out. I mean, even at, at uni, I did a, a project about him. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of my short films was about him. And even now, when I, working in documentary, I keep thinking about that type of stuff. I want to dive into it more. So I think in answer to your question, yes, it, it, it seems to have, not consciously, but it seems to guide me in a way a few of my decisions so it's a strange one and he died from his third heart attack as well his 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 side of the family have had like all died from like heart attacks so that's always weighed on my mind and he died when he was 40 and i'm 35 now so right now <laughs> i'm thinking yeah okay, do i have five years left so mm. it's like um it's such a it all intertwines together, especially with the health problems I have had, which I'm, I'll, I'll probably talk about. Mm. But it's, yeah, it's it, when you think, when I think about it, I'm like, wow, it always intertwined. Mm-hmm. So in terms of when your father passed away and, and then the connection that you started to have around the comics and entering that world, did you have that before your dad passed away? Was that something that, that kind of started afterwards I'm just wondering like when was the first time that you kind of picked up a comic book or when was the first time that you really felt like a intense connection to what you were reading and that led you on a path at that time it's it's a question I've asked myself and I can't remember if I was Mm -hmm. reading comics before or not I know that my dad got me into video games like that's Mm -hmm. something he specifically did because he bought me a Game Boy with Tetris and then a Mega Driver of Sonic the Hedgehog. And those kind of like, I was like, oh my God. Everyone loves um, Sonic. <laughs> yeah. And that I think that plays into it as well, because that is, you know, the creative side. And I've even worked in video games as well now a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then you're a kid and everyone's playing video games. Everyone's playing with toys. Comics is quite a specific one because it's something, weirdly, you get more teased for back then. Mm-hmm. Like when I was mm-hmm. reading comics at school and stuff, people were like, why are you reading comics? Um, yeah so it's a it is a weird one I I, I can't answer that question because I'm like I honestly don't know in my head I started reading comics after Mm -hmm. just because I don't think I was I I was probably reading like oh no because I was reading like Beano and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um, you didn't take it seriously or it didn't really connect with you until but like my memories of like going into a comic book shop and digging through comics was 100% Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. I love yeah. that because I just, I brought up kind of like the critical theory part of it because I find that it does kind of intertwine with my life now. I have to ask myself certain questions, not have to, but I find that I ask myself certain questions. Like, how do I feel about that? What am I going to do if I go into that and stuff like that? And at uni, it was very prominent because we were, like I said, we were kind of forced to do it every week. Is that something that was a good process for you being a creative person and then going into this like theory world and the 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 theory and critical thinking and all that stuff has been like the hardest thing for me always Mm -hmm. I've hated having to explain why I do things artistically or creatively because I can't explain it I'm fascinated by people 
and I'd admire people who sit down, they've made something and they sit there and they explain everything and why they made every decision and why they did this and why they did that. And I'm like, my head explodes. I'm like, how the hell? Like, they just seem like 10 million times more intelligent than me <laughs> because yeah. I'm just like, everything I do is from feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's literally like gut and heart always. I don't know why I made this decision. It just felt right. Mm. And maybe and a lot of people think that's maybe a cop out, but it's just how I work. And I hope that comes across in my work because that's just always what I'm, I draw from my experiences and the emotional things I've been through in my life and just apply it to my work, whether that's my fears, my loves, my whatever. I guess that's why one of the reasons I'm in documentary now as well, because it's less scripted and mm. you're just following up natural path a lot of the time it's more organic path that you're following even though my way of making documentaries is a little bit different because I try I do approach it from a more artistic point of view and I do storyboard and I do try and plan things as well and try and bring those two worlds together which is really interesting in itself um yeah critical thinking and it was tough it's tough the hardest part of uni writing a dissertation but I had no desire to yeah. do any of that I just wanted to make films and I still just want to make films and and so you said a number of people dropped out from your course now just hearing you both you're saying that you went to the course you both came from a very practical side of things so the theory of it wasn't so much focused on the courses that you had done beforehand so when you got to university what kept you there what motivated you to, to stay and work through those theory elements of it and get to the end point compared to your other classmates that dropped out I'll tell you what, it's, I think we got to the point and I'll let you answer it from your perspective. I didn't come from like, not like a supportive environment, but I didn't come from a very stable environment. So for me, it was that I didn't want to go home. I didn't, Mm -hmm. I I was like, okay, do I stay? And, and I did think about that because just to give you like numbers, we started with 163 students in my particular class. We ended up with 83 by the second year. Wow. Like, and I remember that number because we only graduated with 64 students. So it's, yeah, it's not an easy feat. Honestly, like I think people see like photography and they're like, oh, she just took pictures. Nah, it was involved. (laughs) Like it was, it was involved, bruv. It was a lot to take in, even in the first year, because you also had to, for us, it was produce a film, produce a sketchbook, produce a script. It was all at once. It was like, it, and you have to do this in like six weeks. And then you're like, what? <laughs> you know, Explain you every whole... single little decision you made. Yeah. And, and I why. asked Ricardo that question is because if you have a such a personal project to have to explain to people like who don't know your life story, you know, this little part of like your dad, and we all had to go through that process. And I find it very interesting because we're away from home. And then with that, you have to dig deep, basically. And you're like, damn it. <laughs> I came here to not dig deep. I came here to drink and uh, be a student. <laughs> and, yeah. and suddenly we were asked to really open up. Having said that, from my experience, how did you feel in that time? And let's talk about your university years, because they are very formative years. Honestly, I was just so hyped to be away from living at my house. Not because mm-hmm. not I had any, I didn't like, I loved, you know, I had a very, very lucky out of my upbringing considering my dad died my mum's unbelievable woman did everything in her power to just give me and my sister the best like life we could have a very loving household it wasn't like a we I love you type household but my mum like her way of showing love was just like buying things and giving me things <laughs> yeah <laughs> it just like transferred into my own life the way I way I love but honestly drinking women hanging out with people drugs 
all the, having my own space, doing where the fuck I want with mm-hmm. my student loans. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Freedom. I, yeah, there was nothing. There was never a moment where I was like, I'm going to leave. That's not saying the course wasn't keeping me there. I loved it. I loved it every time I get to make something. And the cool thing was we could make stuff that wasn't, you know, anything to do with the course. That was the great thing about it. You could rent equipment away from the course. You could just be like, hey, I just rent a camera for a few days and you could just go and shoot something if you wanted, which we did a few times. But I just was having the time of my life, to be honest. Like, yeah. you know, even when I got really ill, because I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease at uni, to the point I got so ill that my course leader was like, you should take a year off. Uh-huh. Even that wasn't stopping me. I was like, I want to hang out with my friends. Like I just, I had a really cool group of friends, loved hanging out with them. I loved playing video games and talking about films, watching films. It was, it was my people, you know, like it was, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd never mm-hmm. met people who were just like me. They were creative. They liked films and I just didn't have that before. So, you know. It was like a whole group of just amazing geeks who we'd spent our like childhood growing up in front of the yeah. tv and like comic books and stuff like that so when we, we really, were an art we were literally at an art uni every yeah. course was creative mm, so everyone yeah. was like insanely creative that's yeah. what kept us there i don't know what your memory is of driving up to uca but like when i drove up with my dad and it was like my dad's not passed away but it was one of the few things that we did together and he drove me in and i remember there was the international students already there and someone was building like paper cranes someone was smoking weed someone was like <laughs> playing guitar on the lawn and he was like are you sure you want to go here and i was like yes yes <laughs> these are my people <laughs> we're gonna stay up until 4 a.m am and talk about why Forrest Gump is the best film ever you know what I mean so like he was like do you sure you want to go here and I was like yes I'll be here forever it was a great environment it's tough but it was a great environment um yeah I know I feel like why you wanted to stay but why did you stay after you got diagnosed with Crohn's that's again that's a really big decision I kind of want to probe into your decision making process like is there a pros and cons list or are you very much like no I'm gonna do this and stuff I think it was just FOMO like I I, <laughs> I, I didn't mm. want my friends to just like move on without me because they were like mm-hmm. take a year out and I was like cool I weighed it in my head I'm like cool I'm just gonna sit around for a year I don't know what's gonna happen all my friends I've made in that first because it was after first year of uni and I had just all these friends and I was like okay so what's going to happen here I'm going to go and co- take a year off come back and then there's going to be all these people that have spent first year together and I'm going to just be some like random old dude to got left behind <laughs> and yeah. I was like there's no way I'm doing that and people like my close friends like Chris and stuff like that he was like oh I got you man and that kind of just I knew I had friends that were always going to be there for me if I did get sick and stuff so yeah, there was just like, it was never, I didn't even consider leaving. Yeah. It just wasn't a choice for me. Can I ask, so in terms of getting sick and the diagnosis, how what kind of period was that over and how did that happen? So first year of uni, I, I went to uni when I was 19 or 20, something along those lines. I went a little bit later than some people do. Mm-hmm. And for during the first year of uni, I would get ill, but not really know what it was. It was kind of like weak weakness um but you know you're drinking a lot you're doing drugs and all this stuff so I just thought I was just like not used to the lifestyle of just like Mm -hmm. constant partying and going you know out till 5 a.m and then going to a lecture at 8 a.m so I just thought nothing of it just thought I need to sleep more 
And then I had a job as a production assistant in the summers. So after uni, I went to work in Covent Garden as a production assistant. And I was doing like long days traveling into central London from Enfield, getting there for late eight in the morning, leaving at six or seven or eight in the evening. So it's really tough, tough, tough job being a production assistant at a production company, just making tea all day for people and doing whatever they want, basically. Um, Being on your feet all day, I imagine. Yeah, pretty much always on your feet. And I had, uh, without sounding um, going too much into it, I told you I had an abscess back when I was at Subway. That was Mm -hmm. actually in my arse. So I had this operation there. So I had sometimes some uncomfortableness there. So it was all like a bit a mix of pains and stuff but this was this summer it was one of the summers when there was like a bird flu or something going around Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I remember I walked into work one day and I walked into my boss's office and he was like are you okay and I was like what he was like your skin is like really pale and I was like what do you mean and literally as I said what do you mean I just dropped on the floor oh wow Uh, and the next thing I wake up is someone like waving (laughs) like a fan on me And I was lying on the floor in the office and everyone was around giving me water and stuff. And I was like, whoa, what the hell? And they were like, you're okay? I was like, I feel really ill. And they were like, cool, well, we're going to get take you to hospital and stuff. So I went to hospital and they did loads of tests. I didn't know what was going on. They are just doing loads of tests and stuff. And then the first thing that came back was they said to me, they were like, okay, you're anemic. And I was like, okay, didn't really know what that was. And they were like, this is quite unusual for men at your age to be anemic. It's more common for women to be anemic at mm-hmm. that age, but they were like a 19-year-old guy. It's unusual for you to be anemic, so we need to work out why you're anemic. More tests, stayed in hospital for a few days. And then one day, literally, I was just sitting in the hospital bed, and they came up to me, and were like, okay, we, know, we think we know what this is. And I was like, cool, like, what's going on? And they were like, you have Crohn's disease, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And I was like, the fuck is that <laughs> like, mm. i had no idea but the one word i had heard was disease so i was just like panic immediately because i'd been like told all my life my dad had heart disease and because that mm. was one of the things as well when this happened i was like my immediate thought was like fuck there's something wrong with my heart like right so i'd been sitting in hospital for days being like fuck i have heart disease they had told me my heart's fine that's good but then they were like you have this thing called crohn's i have no idea what they're talking about um so I had to work out and it wasn't, there wasn't as much awareness of like, I couldn't go on social media back then uh, and just be like, find a bunch of cronies that I can do now and be like, let's <laughs> have other people's yeah. experiences. So I had internet. So I just like Googled it and stuff and went to the library and looked into things and spoke to doctors. So it's a form of inflammatory bowel disease. It's, it's kind of hard to explain in just a couple of sentences, but mm-hmm. it, a lot of people have different reactions to it but essentially you get like an inflamed bowel and when that happens it affects everything mm-hmm. which is something that people don't really understand people think oh you just need the toilet more and you're gonna have a bad time that's part of it but it's not really it it's an autoimmune disease and it pretty much can shut down your whole body at any moment mm-hmm. and i have to take medication weekly and if i don't take that medication my body just stops just doesn't mm-hmm. want to do anything anymore. And the hardest thing with it is there's no control over it. I can wake up any morning 
with a flare up and that's my day done. And that can be out of nowhere. There's no cure. There's no confirmed reason why I have it. It's just there and people get it at different times and you kind of just get on with it, really. Mm-hmm. People have found different ways to deal with it. Some things work for some people. Some things work don't work for other people. The biggest struggle with it is it's not the same for everyone. So it's really mm-hmm. hard because people will be like, oh, this I cured my Crohn's. And you're like, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> and then <laughs> you're know, just like, what are you yeah. talking about? Um, so you just kind of work out what works for you. And thankfully, I've been in remission for a long time. I had a big operation a few years ago where they removed a piece of my intestine because I had a constant pain in my lower right side of my stomach. It was just always there, this horrible, horrible pain. And that was one of the worst periods of my kind of life. I was just always had this horrific pain. And they were like, look, we're going to remove your a bit of your intestine. Intestines are so long. They were just like, we're just going to mm-hmm. take some out. They just took out the messed up part. Weirdly, they took my appendix out at the same time. And this is actually quite a good example of how painful this thing can be. I didn't know I had appendicitis. Oh, wow. Because I was just like, oh, it's what? my Crohn's. I was like, oh, it's my oh, Crohn's. Oh, my God. And they were like, holy shit, you need to like be more um, vocal about when you're in pain. So that was a that was a big lesson for me because I literally just left it there and like and any other person or like without it would have been like why well, I've got this insane pain. But I was really lucky that it didn't like explode basically. Um, so that, I'm, yeah, I'm absolutely in shock. I know. I'm like, in fact, we're not videoing this, but it's like, you can see our faces right now because can that, I... that that that's severe pain. So that's how severe long pain? You, yeah. How long were you? How long? did you battle that severe pain for before you had the operation? It wasn't, they hadn't like hit the full pelt of like the pain. It was like right. kind of this acute kind of thing. So they caught it early enough. I think if, if I'd left it longer, I would have gone into a pain that I was like, I have to go to hospital right now because yeah. appendicitis is like no, no joke. It's up there with like kidney stones, which I had recently, which was the most horrific pain I've had in my life. But that's the thing. That's the biggest thing with having a chronic condition or an invisible illness and these autoimmune diseases. This is the thing people don't think about. You're constantly getting ill with various different things, whether that's joint pain or feeling sick or just very basic things. And your first thought is always, okay, is this my Crohn's? And then you have to almost work out, is your Crohn's doing this? Because if it is your Crohn's, normally you kind of just write it out. So I've got so many things. Like, and the, with the, the doctors as well, a lot you, you almost know more about Crohn's than your doctor. Unless mm-hmm. you're seeing your like, gastroenterologist who obviously knows Because you're about living it. it almost, yeah. 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 But like, you know, a lot of doctors, don't, they don't know every single disease and every single condition and stuff like that. So you're just going in. And it's always like, oh, is it this? And, you know, your bloods are different because you have Crohn's disease. Your blood results are always going to be different. You're on another thing is you're on these medications that are quite like really powerful medications. Like I'm on an injection every week that is an immunosuppressant. So it's suppressing my immune system. And then I'm getting ill because of an injection that's stopping me from getting ill. <laughs> I'm getting a yeah, different illness. Yeah. Um, getting colds all the time. And you're just like feeling weak all the time so it's constant mental battle because you're just like trying to work out why you're ill all the time and is it your Crohn's or is it something else and sometimes whether you just let it slip like I did with the appendicitis or your doctors are just like shrugging things off being like oh it's your Crohn's Mm -hmm. you end up missing something else that gets worse and worse and worse Mm -hmm. prime example I had arthritis in my foot 
a pain in my foot and it, I kept getting told it was joint pain from my Crohn's and it wasn't it was an actual injury that hadn't been dealt with and it just developed got worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where I had to have an operation to fuse my toe now because uh, it's got so bad that if I don't want pain in my foot they just had to fuse my toe so my toe can't move so therefore I can't be in pain because the toe can't move anymore um Gosh. So Do they just know, have a wing for you at the hospitals? <laughs> I have like a I, it's listed funny, like I, five like, things. It's like this is like nothing. I haven't even yeah. like I, there's mm, so many things. Really like, it, yeah. I, 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 it's hard for me to sit here and go through my laundry list of everything. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I got a call from a neurologist the other day because I had bad pain here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was like pre-pandemic. I I, I had a scan done. They were like looking as if I had nerve issues. And on your shoulder, this is. Yeah, on my shoulder, sorry. On your shoulder. I forget I'm not on camera. Um, Yeah, on my (laughs) shoulder. Um, And they scanned my head as well. And then I get a phone call a few weeks later from someone in the neurology department being like, hey, so we found this thing in your brain. It's called a cavernoma. And basically, it's like a cluster of blood cells that are just like sitting in your brain. And sometimes they'll bleed and just give you these like really bad headaches. And if they bleed too much, it could be like quite bad for you. And I was like, sorry, what? <laughs> so I was like, and then she was like, someone will call you about this to explain exactly what it is. Nine months till I got that call. <gasps> wow. So I've just been sitting here with this thing in my head doing Googling and I'm Googling and it's like, oh, it's a benign brain tumor. And I'm like, what? What the? What, what are you talking about? And I'm <laughs> oh like, Googling, I'm trying to find all this information. And yeah. And then they call me up and they're like, do you know what? It's 0.6% chance it's going to bleed. Don't worry about it. Oh, gosh. Right. We have to unpack this a little bit. Let's go back. <laughs> so when when you initially got sick and they came into the room and they said, right, we've found out what it is. It's Crohn's disease. How did you feel at that time? Because obviously you said that you spent a little bit of time concerned that it was to do with your heart because of the issues that your dad and his family had suffered. Did you feel a sense of relief a little yeah. that it wasn't to do with your heart? And what was the next emotion that you felt around that to then come to an acceptance of having Crohn's disease and acceptance of what that was going to mean for you? 100% I was relieved that it wasn't my heart. Super relieved. And I think that relief probably overshadowed the feelings that preceded it because I I don't Mm -hmm. think it took me a long time to process what I even had because, uh, you know, I was 19 and honestly, I just kind of fobbed it off after Mm -hmm. that. I just kind of was like, cool, I have this thing. Um, I was going to say, how did you balance that with school? Because you obviously now have got into the habit and habits are hard to break. And we lived on a very small campus. So are, are, like you can hear people having fun, <laughs> like even when you're trying to stay home and be... Well, I, I, when know, I was in second year, so... You were at home, you were at a different place. Yeah, I moved out of the village. I moved into a flat with a girl called Emily and a girl called Mansa. Great people. Um, it was just me and them in this little flat. I just wasn't ill enough uh-huh. to, for it to bother me. Like I had mm-hmm. this thing, but for whatever reason, I wasn't getting that ill yet. When did you get that ill that the doctors advised you to take a year off uni? That was in terms of diagnosis and everything. And because it's unpredictable, that's why they were advising it. It wasn't because I was like... Oh, I see. So I they was, advised it from from the moment that you were diagnosed. Yeah. That was their initial advice was to take yeah, a year off. initial advice. All right, okay. So the, the hardest part of the whole journey at that point during uni 
was finding the right medication mm-hmm. because it wasn't like, oh, here, you have Crohn's, have this medication, you're sorted. There's loads of different ones for different people. And I've been through like eight different medications that I've either, you know, one that's worked and then it's just stopped working. So they change it to something else. That was hardest part because that affected, you know, my relationships and things like that, because mentally that fucked me up. Like mm-hmm. um, I was like living in a brain fog a lot of times and in a weird way that got me through things because I was just in this fog, but I wasn't, I wasn't nice to some people in my life because my moods were like swinging all over the place without me even kind of realizing because of these different mm-hmm. medications I was on. And I know for, I was in a relationship at the time when I got diagnosed and I know that that was a big part. I mean, we're always a young relationship. We probably weren't going to spend the rest of our lives together, but it was 100% one of the reasons we broke up because mm-hmm. I didn't understand what I was going through. They didn't understand what I was going through. So it was just constant fights and clashes. Like, why are you being a dick? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, well, I don't know yeah. why I'm being like this. Like, I can't control my moods. So though that was hard. I got ill a lot of the time. But to be honest, like, the lecturers were just so good to me. Yeah. They gave me so many extensions for stuff they were like okay you have this unknown condition that we don't fully understand and it could get bad it could not get bad and they were just very understanding of it like that's great to know oh yeah for sure did having that put your mind at ease when you were having flare-ups and you wanted to get your work done because listening to you now I can sense that you're someone that's very passionate about their work and so I can imagine dealing with that and thinking about missing deadlines and not being able to finish work did that help yeah, that definitely stressed me out a lot. And then, but knowing that I could um, probably get an extension made it a lot easier. It's an interesting one because you think about a lot of things you think about when you're making films, because it's another kind of job where you're standing up and you're, especially when you're directing, you're like, people are relying on you constantly for answers and um, attention at all times. I just found ways to deal with things. Like I didn't eat. <laughs> for example like I wouldn't eat on days I was shooting because I was worried that my stomach would like have the reaction or something didn't drink alcohol if I knew I had like shoots coming up and stuff you kind of just start adjusting you take certain like drugs and medications that just get you through things not the best choices mm-hmm. I made in my life but they got me through what I needed to get through at the time mm-hmm. I think the the biggest thing for me the biggest battle I've had is anxiety that's 100% the biggest thing because from my dad dying, that's when I immediately started experiencing anxiety at such a young age, at like 12 years old, to the point where I'm in counseling. And I spent the whole of my teenage years trying to get rid of anxiety. In what way was that anxiety showing at that time? How was it presenting itself in your life? So I think people from the outside have zero idea that I was had anxiety. Mm-hmm. But I've I've always been good, which is not good, at boiling things up and just mm-hmm. going through with things and being the clown, just smiling through things. If you, say, you spoke to any of my friends I grew up with and went, oh, Rick was like the most anxious person there, they would have laughed in your face. They would have been like, what are you talking yeah. about? I was going to say, you're a very calm person. Like I see you like maneuver and he's he's very charming in a room. You know what I mean? You make (laughs) someone laugh here, you move over, you'd be like, you're right, mate. You're that kind of guy. I think you're very connecting. And so that kind of, did that affect you before? It's funny, yeah, because I've always like imagined myself as like an introvert. 
but I am mm-hmm. very extroverted. I gain energy from talking to people. I gain energy from other people. And I'm, I'm an information sponge. I want to hear about people. I want to hear about things and what's going on with people and stuff. And just inherently intrigued by people. They don't like moaning or complaining about things. I'm very forgiving and just put, like get on with things. So I don't know. It's just part of my personality, I guess. Do you know what? The, one of the, hard, the hardest things you can do one of the worst things that can happen to you is when something that isn't kind of normal is the wrong word, but I'll use it now. Something that isn't normal, you just kind of accept it as normal. And because I had anxiety from such a young age, I just accepted it as a, a normal thing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was much older, even during the pandemic, I've got friends talking to me and having anxiety for the first time in their lives in their 30s. Or like realizing that they have anxiety because I'm like, it's dangerous, I think, that you kind of just treat it as this thing that's just there. Yeah. Um, I was like high functioning depression almost like for, yeah. for a long time. And I just wouldn't talk about things. So I was just like, that's it. That's just who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also good sides to that because it really helped me get through things because I was just like so accepting of everything. But you end up. I, I have theories about my health that are not backed up by science, but I have been reading things. I've been reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. I just got that book. Yeah. And I'm very firm in belief now that your body is like keeping track of all these traumas and all these illnesses and all these things you've bottled up and then it's coming out in different ways. And I'm not saying that's why I have Crohn's or why I'm chronically ill and all that stuff, but I definitely think um, I'm better. I feel better when I let things out um, and talk about things and stuff like that. It's very simple. I'm not like saying anything like mind blowing or anything, but uh, go back to my original point. I spent my teenage years trying to deal with anxiety And I remember getting to 18 and honestly feeling like I'd actually overcome anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, I genuinely felt like it. I'd become a lot more confident um, in myself and who I was. I could just feel it. I could feel it was gone. And then when I got Crohn's, it all came back. Uh, And that is the biggest effect it's had on me. And even now, my anxiety is so bad. I just can't control it. It's like Uh horrifically bad. And I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know what to do. I still don't know what to do. But I do know that being creative and doing creative things help, help mm-hmm. massively. It just, I, it's like therapy for me. And I think that goes all the way back to your question about what keeps you going and in that industry or even staying at uni and stuff. It's like, it is a drug. Creativity mm-hmm. is a drug to me. Like I, it's breathing. It's literally breathing to me like being creative doesn't even have to be good I just like Mm. being creative making things collaborating with people and that kept me I kept me going for a long time until about till I got to 30 and then I crashed again and was like why the fuck am I doing anything Mm -hmm. why am I doing it why did you crash again probably hitting 30 I guess I don't know so at uni diagnosed with Crohn's disease so what happened after you've got your degree where did your life take you in terms of now that you've stepped out you've thrown your graduation hat up in the air you're stepping into the real world what happens then I had a very kind of unusual path after graduation actually so I came out of a relationship graduated Mm -hmm. at the same time 
immediately when I left uni, I went home and I was a little bit lost. I was like, I don't want to go home. Like, I just don't want to go home. Like, I, I was enjoying my kind of freedom. So I actually decided I was going to go traveling. I was pretty much like, I'm going to take a year to just go traveling. Um, I'd saved up a bit of money. I'd been working in the summer. I was like, I can go into railing and just spend like a year traveling. So I was really excited for that. So I booked a few things. And coincidentally, I'd booked a little trip to Holland uh, to see a friend. And I was going to do this thing called couch surfing where you just literally just sleep on people's couches. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just going to go find myself, really. And then my whole entire plan changed because my friend contacted me and was like, hey, dude, I've been offered a job in Amsterdam at this production company, but I've just signed a contract on a house and I have to stick to this like 12 month thing. And he's like, I kind of just don't really want to go anyway. But I know you're looking to just get out of here. Do you want to take the interview? And I was like, well, weirdly, I'm in Holland next weekend. So I could literally go and have that interview in person if they want. Wow. And he was like, yeah, do it. So I, he gave me the details and I, I messaged him. I was like, hey, I'm Megan. I can get to Amsterdam easily. Just let me know if you want me to come along. And they were like, yeah, come. I went along and this lovely guy called Phil, who ran the place, sat me down, popped out a beer, sat me down <laughs> and was like, so you want to work here? So Dutch. <laughs> well, he was English. So it was a funny thing. Oh, he was nice. English. Yeah. Nah. Um, Even better. <laughs> yeah. um, and literally just interviewed me for this. It was basically like a production assistant slash trainee job. We did it. He took me around the office. I said hi to a bunch of people. It was a very small company because it was a sister company of a London, big London production house. Mm -hmm. I was like 15 of them, I think. And on the spot, he was like, okay, when can you move here? I was oh, like, what? Wow. So he's like, what? He was like, when can you move to Amsterdam? And I was like, Jesus, um, two weeks. <laughs> so yeah, I went home, packed all my stuff up, said goodbyes, had a big like leaving do. But then I moved to Amsterdam. Did that feel like, even though you were ready to go for an adventure and you were ready to go into railing, do couch surfing for a year, when you got that opportunity, were you like, yeah, this is an adventure in itself? Like, did it feel quite it, the satisfying? Fact, the fact that it was, the fact that it was Amsterdam really because you know it's Amsterdam and I was mm -hmm. like I'm gonna get so high all the time <laughs> yeah all the time um, and yeah it was such a free open place and I was like this is awesome and I'd spent like two days in Amsterdam afterwards and I was like yeah I can 100% live in I was like fuck it let's do this and everyone's like all my friends are like move to Amsterdam fuck I'm gonna come visit and all this stuff and I was like yeah and I had the best best deal you could possibly have asked for at that age like unbelievable right so they so part of the I was deal gonna was, say hit me so you have this so they had this production house and it was on the canal called the Kaiserglad I'm saying that completely mm. wrong but it was like it's known <laughs> as like the richest canal in the in Amsterdam it's like where all these big houses are and people like that and behind the office they had lodging essentially for freelancers to come because a lot of people come from other countries and they have like a little room where they sleep and they said to me, okay, you can have free accommodation. The only exchange is you have to lock up the office at the end of the day and stuff like that. Not every day, but you know, keep an eye on things. I was like, an, I was basically mm. like an assistant for the building as well as an assistant for like the place. I was like free accommodation and free food. So the kitchen, there was a big kitchen. Win. that was always stocked what? with food. <laughs> yeah. And if I stayed after a certain time, because it was post-production, People are there for hours on end. Like people, it's like horrible, horrible life. Like they're working like 14 mm -hmm. hours doing VFX and sitting at computers. But if you work past like 6 p.m., you can get free takeaway. You just have to put it on the uh, account. So I was just like, oh, yeah. 
And <laughs> and then literally as I was walking out of my interview, I went into the garden of the office and someone was smoking a joint. One of the staff members was smoking a joint in the garden on their lunch break. And I was like, wait, we're allowed to do that? He was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm moving here. So I moved there from <laughs> so out of uni with like no money. I moved there, I had a job where I was making money and I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have to really pay for food that much. Didn't have mm-hmm. to pay travel because I lived at my job and I was young. So I, yeah, it was like, there was no question I was taking that job. And it was the best like year of my life because it was just amazing. Yeah. What was the job like that was there? So obviously you were having a really positive experience in terms of your social life. What was the professional side of it? Were you learning a lot there? It was a quite a simple job in that I was just an assistant and I would literally like make food and lay it out for them at lunch that was like one of my main parts of the day just lay out (laughs) like I do all the shopping I do all like the bills all the like kind of payments and work with the receptionist to do all like bits and bobs and then I do a bunch of technical stuff like setting up computers or helping like freelancers get set up and just doing production assisting basically anyone that needed something I helped them with it but they were really cool I was on like a program at the time for editing and just like working out my editing and stuff. And the path when I was there was to go into VFX. Mm-hmm. And one of the main reasons I left is because I decided I didn't want to be in VFX and there wasn't really any other mm-hmm. path for me there. So yeah, it was fun. It was hard days, obviously, in every like job. And it was really long hours and it was annoying. Like sometimes I would have to stay. I couldn't go out because I had to lock up and they mm-hmm. had done stuff. So when, when you decided to leave, because... The, the path that was there for you at that company wasn't what you wanted to go into. How did you feel leaving that comfort and that lifestyle? Were you quite apprehensive about leaving it? Or were you like, no, I need my career to take a step forward. And in order to take a step forward yeah. in my career, I have to make a change. That was the that was the, the, the kind of drive of it. And I genuinely mm-hmm. did miss home. I did miss mm-hmm. my friends. I had a, like a group of friends that we'd, I'd like Skype with them and they'd all be together in my friend's house and I'd just be by mm. myself and, it, and I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd just kind of get really kind of sad because they all just, I know what they are just having fun and playing video games with each other and all these people I grew up with. So that, that mm-hmm. did play a part in it. And there was, there was reasons for me to stay as well. I nearly left the job, but stayed in Amsterdam because I was falling in love at the time as well with this um, lovely girl. And I was like, so part of me was like, Oh, maybe I'll stay here and we'll just like, you know, get a flat together and stuff. And then I started looking at how much a flat would be. And I was like, Oh, I was like this isn't gonna work I think I was like I want to go back to London because London is a hub for a lot of these jobs and stuff like that everything and I made a decision to just go freelance Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I was like you know I could just work anywhere but you know what I'm gonna go move back into my mum's for a year save money just work and and very because I'm uh, I was like I'm lucky enough that I can go live at my mum's and be in London so it seemed like a logical decision to me to just go and use that as my hub. My mum would love me to be back. I'm, you know, Italian boy's mum. <laughs> she would just love me being there and I don't have to pay rent. I probably don't have to pay much of food either. And I can be like, okay, becoming freelance is a tough thing. So I just made that decision and I basically just stayed on my mum's until I got regular freelance work and then I moved mm. out. And I mean, the, the decision to become freelance is quite a, it's quite a significant decision to make because you're completely and utterly stepping away from any kind of security or a monthly paycheck. And I think that's quite a courageous um, decision to make. What was going through your mind and 
Did you always think I'm going to be freelance or did did working with that company and having a set career path in front of you put you off wanting to go for, to work for another company? Yeah, I see the benefits of full-time. They're obvious and I, I love it, but I've always been quite a free spirit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm really stubborn and I don't like being told what to do. <laughs> so I don't necessarily like having a boss even though being freelance, it's kind of worse because you have like a different boss all the time and it's actually quite frustrating. Mm-hmm. Part of it was my health. I mean, I would have pushed my directing more in the last 10 or so years if it wasn't for my health. I specifically went more into editing because of my health, because I was like, I'm going to be at a computer. I'm going to mm-hmm. be near a toilet. I'm going to be comfortable. It's going to be easier than being out on set god knows where in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. or just making stuff or standing up and always talking always like continue. as much as i prefer directing to editing like much prefer it um i was like it makes more sense to me i always try and be logical with my decisions even if they're not always come across logical but it was like this is a way for me to have a technical skill that i can make money and do it from a computer anywhere so mm-hmm. that was like for me i was like that is it but don't give up don't ever give up on directing like still mm. keep trying to do that that was the important thing for me so when I made that decision to go freelance it gave me the freedom to make those decisions because I knew if I went into a full-time job doing something that wasn't directing I was going to just get stuck in it and I knew I, I know I'm like I'll get comfortable and I just won't be happy so I'd rather have less money and be a little bit happier than a bunch of money. I say that, but then I'm like, <laughs> money is I was awesome. going to say, money is so awesome, especially when you're living in London. Touch on your kind of work ethic, because I had an abscess on my coccyx in second year. Oh, and wow. yeah, and I remember having the same experience. They take you into a little room, they tell you like, you've got an abscess and this is what's going to happen. And mine had got so deep, it was really close to my bone marrow. And they were like, you're so lucky uh, you didn't have like a hip replacement or whatever. So I was like, cool. I remember going to work and being doubled over because I was waitressing at a hotel at the time and being doubled over and not wanting to stop work and only having to stop because I collapsed because of my yeah. abscess. And they had to put me in the back of an ambulance and it became this whole thing. What is that kind of like having been through a similar experience yourself and obviously having it been much worse in terms of finding out you've got Crohn's and all this other stuff. Did your work ethic, did it take a dive now, especially that you've taken the chance to be freelance? Is it something that you really push yourself to prove I can do this? I can get this done. Yeah. You have to learn that balance really, don't you? It took me a while to understand that balance where I would just keep pushing myself because I was like sleep when I'm dead, basically type attitude. It's a, it's a weird one. I, I, people say to me, like, oh, I admire your work ethic. But I'm just like, like I said earlier, I don't see it because I know I'm how lazy I am. <laughs> I always know I could push myself more and do, do more. But you get in this, like, constant circle where I'm quite hard on myself because I'm like, you should do more. You should push yourself further. And then uh, another little voice on my shoulder is like, yeah, but you have these conditions. Like, give yourself a break. You need rest. Yeah. You need rest and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but, like, still push myself um, that's the hardest thing with these things you because you don't know when you're going to have like a bad flare-up it it kind of dents your um, confidence in pushing yourself and affects you mentally because you're like okay I'm going to push myself and then 
you push yourself and you're super proud of yourself, but then out of nowhere, the next morning you wake up and your Crohn's has just like destroyed everything, all this hard work yeah. you've done. Mm-hmm. So it makes it really hard to make that decision to really push yourself. So sometimes I'll make decisions where I'll be like, do you know what? I'm not even going to bother because uh-huh. you just don't know when this, what's going to happen. I mean, do you go through periods? Because I, I feel like, A, I have ADHD and that's like a whole other conversation, but I, I go through real weird periods of like hyper-focused and then other periods where I'm like, I cannot lift myself off of the sofa. I think I've always been like this, to be honest. Like even from school, I need like deadlines and I need the pressure. Like mm-hmm. I'd always did my homework like the night before. Like someone says to me, hey, we got this project, but you know, do it whenever. I'm just not going to do it. So I have to set myself the pressure. So I'll be like, hey, I'm going to send this to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know why, but something in me is like, I have to hit that deadline now and I will hit it. But then if I'm passionate about something, like the project I'm doing about chronic illness right now, mm-hmm. I wake up every morning excited to to work on it. And, it's, and I don't need any kind of uh, push or deadline or anything. I just want to do it. I think that's quite normal if you're passionate about something, right? It's exciting and you want to make a change and you just get that energy, just gets like taken, takes over kind of a different mode where like, the energy is just driving me forward. Obviously, you hit this point where you're back in Enfield and you've decided to go freelance. What type of work were you doing at the time and what was developing from that work? So at the time, I was doing a lot of short films, a lot of music videos, basically anything that I could be creative with. I really wanted to get back because I'd worked in commercial for a bit. I really wanted to just go into some more kind of anything goes territory, essentially. So it was a mixture of like finding a balance really where I could do some work with friends for like free essentially and then actually make money as well. But thankfully, because I was at home for a bit, it gave me a bit of a leeway to work things out um, and recover from my operation. And I invested in like new computer to just like edit from home. It was kind of a risk at the time. I just like slammed a bunch of money on a, a new iMac and was like, yeah, I'll make the money back. <laughs> and uh, um, thankfully I did yeah. <laughs> well, luckily I did because it could have gone very differently but um, <laughs> yeah then I started just building up contacts really I think that's the hardest thing when you're starting out as a freelancer is getting those solid contacts because there's like hundreds of you coming at the same people all the time and you try and find a groove really because almost saying no to someone at any time in that process, whether you've worked for them before or not worked with them before, you feel like if you say no, they, someone else is going to say yes, and then that they're going to become their go-to. Mm-hmm. So it comes this quite complicated process where you kind of just end up wanting to say yes to everything. It becomes quite intense. It was took me a while to find that balance. So I kept just saying yes to things because you're like, oh, yeah, you never know when more work will come along. And then I started building up contacts that were using me regularly which when it became a lot easier because then I was like okay I've got these four contacts who are gonna use me regularly so mm-hmm. I can start saying no to things without worry and yeah I just kept grinding away really for years just doing everything like there was no 
kind of specific thing in the end i tried to start with more creative stuff initially but then when it came about okay i need to make money and do creative stuff i just started doing everything so i was doing uh commercials i was doing music videos doing short films uh, i was doing in-house like corporate content i spent like time at groupon in their video department helping them mm. i was like shooting that was a really fun time actually because what they were doing is they were promoting companies that had used their like voucher system and stuff like that so mm-hmm. we'd go to these companies who and they're normally really cool companies like i got to fly around in a helicopter like uh, wow. world war II, yeah like a world war ii plane i was going like around the country to all these places my favorite one though i went to do you know paradise wildlife park yeah oh yeah yeah i went to paradise wildlife <laughs> park and i got <laughs> I, I got to go inside the cages and like film animals and I had like meerkats all over me and stuff. Oh, that is so like it a really, dream. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> it was so fun. If people could see Tina's face right now, I'm so excited. You know, I really wanted to like take like four meerkats home with me and just like oh, live with wow. them. But yeah, so it was just like this kind of uh, mix of stuff until I eventually made contact with a friend who got me working quite steadily for a company called Glory International. It's a kickboxing um, competition similar to UFC. It just events take place around the world um, mm-hmm. and people beat the crap out of each other. And then <laughs> I edit. So yeah, I did that. And then I actually briefly worked full-time for a video game company. How was that? Because when you were younger, you were interested in comics, playing video games. Did you get that role and think, oh my God, this is making younger Rick very happy? (laughs) Yeah, 100%. It didn't turn out like that. But I mean, this is the the important moment in my life because it's where I kind of decided to stop. And that's how I ended up doing documentary Uh because I worked in video games and it, you know, the environment maybe wasn't like the best and stuff. And maybe I had a better time in a different environment. But it was so constrained and specific and everything was so precise and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It just isn't the way I work and the way I do things. I'm always kind of following emotion over everything and trying to Mm -hmm. find that kind of uh, free flowing kind of feel to things. So when I had like so many rules, it just really kind of crushed my creativity and made me feel a bit like lost and I didn't know what to do. I kind of was like, why am I in the industry? Mm-hmm. And that's when a friend like have we tried a documentary and I was like, nope. How long were you in that role? So technically probably like two years. Quite a substantial amount Maybe of time. Go. <laughs> you get, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't full-time at first. I started off freelancing and then they were like, no, we're going full-time. Now we've got funding so we can go full-time. But it was weird because I had another health moment as well. I, I like, thought I had bowel cancer. Oh, wow. And it, I thankfully didn't in the end, but it like really loomed on my mind for so long. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was like, you know, I just need to take a break because this work is stressing me out so much. And mixed with those thoughts, I'm just getting like the most stressed I've ever been. I'd never got that bad before. Like I was just mm-hmm. so stressed and going to work was like made me feel sick. So I was like, yes. I just have to, I had to make, it was a tough decision to leave because it was a really cool opportunity, but I had to make it that decision for myself because mm-hmm. I made a kind of, um, choice uh if, you know a few years before that, i was like health first always doesn't matter mm-hmm. anything else nothing else matters if it's ruining your health then get out of there 
Mm-hmm. And then I sat down and and I literally didn't know what to do until I kind of got found documentary. Really, it was like almost like a calling. <laughs> it was a. It happened quite organically in conversation with your friend. Was it just like I don't know what to do next? Like, and then you were just kind of venting and like conversation. Yeah, we, we were having dinner at my friend's house, and we were just you know shooting the shit, and um, he just randomly said it and I was like I have never thought about that and then I just went home and just started watching a bunch and then I was like hmm this isn't why this isn't the world I think it is um Mm -hmm. it's actually one of the most exciting parts of the film industry I personally think and it's a very underrated part of the film industry Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah I just got so excited and I started watching like a documentary every day and my brain was just like on fire almost and I just got super excited were you still working at this point when this conversation happened or had you made the decision already to leave Uh, I had already left you'd already left okay yeah sometimes you do things and it's also almost based on like you say accepting everything because you want to get to a certain level in your career in terms of reputation or monetary gain when you actually have that time to sit down and say what do I actually want was that that aha moment for you when you were like oh okay no I can go in this direction how was that developed in your brain when you had the time to really think about it it, it was funny because you kind of like you live in a certain way and then someone puts a foot in your head and somehow mm-hmm. everything just starts connecting. Mm-hmm. So I was like looking at my old work and I was like, oh, this film feels like a documentary. And it, it wasn't. But I was like, I'd shoot my documentary mm-hmm. exactly the same as this. I'd always been interested in portraits, but I'd never explored that. And that's when I got into photography as well. So mm-hmm. getting into documentary and getting into photography was like a hand in hand thing because I was just like, I love people. People fascinate me. Mm-hmm. I love talking to people. I've been kidding myself that I'm an introvert. Like I'm clearly an extrovert and I've just been like pretending to be an introvert all this time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, just go out and do it. Cause I think Crohn's having this kind of condition had made me forget who I was basically forget the type of person I was because I got so used to being ill and saying no to people. I'd almost become like a recluse in my own head, but it just wasn't me at all. And I think I was in this constant battle with that and making my decisions based on that. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to make a decision because documentary is a hard world to be in and you have to be very active and you have to really put yourself out there. And like I said, it's quite an underrated world. And even now, like one of the big things I want to do is, advance the medium and get it more mainstream and get people into docs more but I had to make that take that step myself first and work out like who am I in as as weird as it sounds I was just like Mm. I need to put myself out there a bit more and be confident and not worry about my health as much and yeah just start talking to people again and I just put the feelings out into the world and that's how I ended up, you know, making a space in time, my first feature documentary. And cause I literally came from someone who I had said to, Oh, I'm, I'm thinking about getting into documentary and they mentioned it to someone else. And then they mentioned it to someone else. And then it came back round to me and I mm. got an interview. So it's a very interesting project for you to take on as a first kind of project as well. Tell us why that was so connected to you making that, that roundabout connection and obviously the documentary. Well, it was a funny thing because this was like 
one of the big decisions for me. I was like, I've got these health issues that I've let define my life. And in a negative way, I've let it define my life. And I'm a firm believer of taking a negative and trying to turn it into a positive in some way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the best you can not obviously there's some negatives you can't but i was like how could i turn this thing that has like dominated my life for the last 10 years into something productive or into art essentially and that's where i was like well let's do a documentary about this world because you know invisible illness crohn's autoimmune disease is still so misunderstood and there's not enough awareness around it by far mm-hmm. so my first decision was like, okay, cool. I'm let's, let's make a documentary about Crohn's or an invisible illnesses, basically. So I had that in my head and then this opportunity came along and I didn't quite know what I was walking into, but all I knew was that the project was with a company called Salon Pictures, who is one of the biggest documentary companies in the country. Mm-hmm. So I was like, cool, this is a good opportunity to at least just go into their office and talk to them. Who knows what's going to happen? I don't know what the project is. <laughs> So I just went and had an interview, you know, same way anyone would and sat down and Nick like turned to me and he was just like, Hey, and I was like, so what's the project? And he said, my two children have this thing called Duchenne muscular dystrophy and I'm making a film about it. And I was like, Oh, what's that? And then he told me and I was just like in shock, like fatal muscle wasting disease. So yeah, Nick, presented this idea of a documentary that was raising awareness of an illness so i was like well that's exactly the kind of stuff i was thinking about doing and i told him my, why i wanted to get into documentary and it just like clicked he was handing me a hard drive of his whole entire life about 10 minutes later mm-hmm. um and just said hey um i don't know what this film is but all i know is we've been building this house this extension on a house to make it accessible for our kids as they grow up because they're going to get less and less able. And it was called Theo and Oscar's house at the time. And he was like, cool, let's see if we can make a film about this house. And I went away for like months and I had all this footage. It was just like, I had access to his like iCloud. And every time he filmed on his phone, I just see it. <laughs> it was really mm. kind of a lot of trust. And to be honest, for the first few months, I just didn't know what to do. I was so overwhelmed by the footage and I was still freelancing and working and stuff. It was so hard to just sit down and think about this horrible thing. And every time I, you know, saw the kids, I'd just be like, it was just hard. Um, Mm. And and we didn't have any plan. It was just like, okay, what's going on with this house? And then one day, I don't know what happened, just normally how it is for me. I just woke up one day. And I managed to just sit down and do a 20 minute cut of the footage. And I sent it to Nick and I was like, I think this is the direction we should go. And it was a different direction. It was more emotional led. And I said to him, I think you need to be in this. I think we need to take a step back, interview you, interview your wife. Let's get all these interviews done. And then I think we can build a film from those interviews. And Mm then, yeah, he was like, yeah, let's do this. And then I became co-director and we decided to direct it together. And yeah, we just kept making it until it became a space in time, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was, um, yeah, because we, we had this idea, you know, because the people with Duchenne, maybe, you know, they're given this kind of shorter life sentence, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this like space in time to live. So that's why we call it that. So it's like, what do you do with that time? We mm-hmm. just started getting deeper with the film and started thinking about life and death and 
really digging into that stuff rather than, and we, we still kept the idea of this house because an accessibility, the film could have just been a very political film about how terrible accessibility is, but I just followed my heart still in my head for as usual. And yeah, we ended up with something that we're very proud of and it's done very well. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it got a cinema release. It's been on an hour on Amazon prime and it's been a very interesting journey. And I got news this week that's taken the journey a step further. Do tell. So Are we allowed? The, well, I'm announcing it tomorrow. I have, well, I have to drop it tomorrow, but this isn't going to be out it's tomorrow. Okay. So, um, so this is like the, the like true definition of fell into it. I'm now the head of creative at Salon Pictures. <gasps> so Ricardo. Right now, oh my god, oh, that's amazing! <laughs> that's awesome, awesome. We're gonna and cry. You just, I, I, just, <laughs> I, know, I was like, this is a full circle. This is so cool. Oh, congratulations! Thank oh, you. So cool. I really can't wait to see what you can do. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really exciting because it's a job where basically a lot of my job is to bring in projects and bring in new talent and a huge thing for me is trying to, I don't really like to use this word, but I want to diversify the documentary yeah. world a bit more. And there's so many ideas that need to be made and films that need to be made. And I keep coming across these ideas and I'm like, I, this isn't something for me to direct, but I'd love to get someone to direct this. So, you know, the lifeblood of our company is, you know, projects. So basic half of my job is networking and bringing in projects developing projects getting the right team on them and get the documentaries made essentially and then the other part of my job is I'm still directing and editing and all that stuff so I'll be doing my own films when it's like you know ones I want to do and stuff um with Nick you know me and Nick are going to do another film and yeah just all anything creative about the business basically just uh, day-to-day keeping raising awareness and getting the documentary world buzzing and getting people into it and kind of trying to convince filmmakers to you know go into it more as well I was gonna ask just before what have you taken away in terms of difference from making commercials and making films and short films and now making documentaries what is different for you in terms of the process when I say process is that like are you more satisfied now do you find that you hit your stride almost in now that you're doing documentary, this feels more natural, this feels more like in line with yeah. your working process and your thinking? Yeah, I think so. That's the thing with documentary, like, because like I said a minute ago, it's real life. So mm-hmm. I'll just be on the internet. I can look out my window. I can walk around the street, hear someone saying something and just look at, you know, I spent three days in hospital with kidney stones in the summer mm-hmm. and I left with like 10 documentary ideas. Yeah. yeah and you're, you're working on something right now, right? Yeah. I'm working on raising awareness of uh, chronic illness at the moment. Chronic illness, yeah. So I'm doing interviews for that at the moment because that stemmed from me doing something about Crohn's, but it was like Crohn's is a bit too specific by itself. Whereas the chronic illness experience is a much wider experience. One and two people are like experiencing like some kind of chronic pain, whether it's very small or, um, you know, it could be as much just a small back pain they have every single day. A lot of people just get on with their lives with this pain, constant pain that they have and just kind of becomes a normal thing. So, yeah, I'm just interviewing people about their experience of it. But 
this film is very like art house. It's almost a immersive kind of exhibition, almost like on screen. That's the way we're kind of treating it. Cause I'm trying one of the things that is quite common with this type of stuff is it feels like you're living in like a dream in like a kind of blur a lot of the time mm-hmm. you're just going through. So I've kind of created an idea that is trying to put people in the shoes of people with chronic pain and try and like almost feel like I want them to feel like they've experienced chronic pain for 90 minutes. As, as fucked up as that sounds, I'm working with a lot of people and that's just something I'm going to be quietly developing and carrying on as I continue my new role at Salon and develop other projects and yeah we're doing all kinds of stuff it's an important time it's a big time we really want to make put salon on the map with with documentary and really go big um so it's exciting and scary but yeah it's the right thing to be doing for sure i'm i'm very happy I've only known you for the space of, let's say, two hours of talking or two and a half <laughs> yeah. hours. But, like, I can see how much value connection, like, has to your life and what it really means to you. And so to hear about, like, your current projects and how you pivoted and your new role that you're starting. Like, you know, I don't know you, but I feel like crying because I feel like really, like, you know, <laughs> it's, just it just, it's like, it's like, yes, of course, <laughs> you know. I, I, yeah, I, I get yeah. what you mean. Because it feels like for me now that you've just announced this or you are going to announce this, and I love that we just got the ex- exclusive, is <laughs> that, um, <laughs> thanks for giving us our first, it's that it, visually and like artistically, it feels like everything that you've been creating on your own merit is now going to line up with what, ev- you know, so everyone can el- else can kind of see where your career stamp is does that make sense no yeah yeah yeah. I I was I was thinking about this today actually because I was like I'm in a job that I never really expected to be in but then when I looked at my path and I was like am I ready for this and I'd looked at everything I'd done to get here and I was like yeah I'm like so ready for this like this is exactly where I should be I don't even know how to explain it it's just really cool I don't know what the future holds I'm incredibly thankful to Nick just for giving me this opportunity because it's been a life-changing experience meeting him he's been a mentor a friend and an amazing colleague and I'm just excited to be working closer with him and doing important work because that's the, the great thing about this is like everything we're doing is important in my opinion. There's nothing better for me than using art to do important things. Like, there's just nothing better. So, um, yeah, that's where I am. That's where I fell. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a lovely place to leave it, don't you think, Dave? Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, That's such a lovely place to leave it.